But as we began to discover last time, there are some surprising parallels that emerge between these two sections of God's Word. So let's pick up where we left off in Revelation chapter 7 as we join Pastor Phil. And not until he comes for us and we see him like he is at the time of the rapture are we going to be made like him and get our glorified bodies. And finally, we're going to drop that sin nature and we're going to be glorified and made as perfect outwardly as Christ has made us inwardly in our spirit by our faith in him. Now, at Pentecost, you had more of a harvest at that time, but still, that was nothing compared to the fall harvest, which was the big one. And that was celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Ingathering, because that's what they were celebrating. They were celebrating the goodness of God. They were to make tabernacles or booths made out of palm branches and other things and lean them up against their houses or whatever, and they were to move out there and they were to kind of camp out, and they were to hang from these little booths some of the crops that God had blessed them with as a reminder of God's goodness, right? It spoke of a great harvest, though, that God had given. Well, it should be no surprise to us then, as we see in heaven this great harvest of souls that are suddenly before the throne of God with palm branches. This is the, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles look forward to. A great harvest of souls someday that would be around the throne of God, praising him for his goodness and so on. And so I believe that these folks, I'm not saying that this, as we look at this, is happening exactly at the Feast of First Fruits, or excuse me, at the Feast of, of Tabernacles. I'm just saying it represents that in a symbolic way. This is what those feasts represented, uh, a reality that we see now fulfilled. Well, this is a number that is so large, John said that really nobody could count this number of people, he says, from all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. How did all of these people get saved? Well, again, I think that it's pretty obvious it was through the ministry of the 144,000. No, not only are they going to be completely dynamic, but when they reach people for Christ, you know how it works. You tell two people, they tell two people, you know. I mean, they're going to, the converts are going to go out and they're going to spread the word. And so what started off as 144,000 will probably reach hundreds of millions of people saved during this time. I mean, it's incredible to think about. Now you say, well, all right, that was the ministry of the 144,000, but how did they get saved? Well, I personally believe it was through the ministry of the two witnesses, which we're going to be introduced to in chapter 11, who conduct their ministry during the first half of the tribulation period. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. That's one of those flashbacks. 
you know, even though it comes after this event, it really is talking about something that happened prior. So, so we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter 11. But chapter 7, we see two groups. We see the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and then we see the fruit of their ministry, a harvest of souls from all over the world, so many that John says they could not even be numbered. Now, somebody might say, as you share this with them, or somebody you know, if they were reading this, uh, they might say something at this point like, hey, that's going to be me. Because you know what? I'm going to wait to see if all this stuff comes true that you're talking about, all right? Because I I don't really know if it's true, but all right, you've told me what's going to happen, and if it happens, and you're all raptured out of here, and I'm left, I'm going to get saved during the tribulation period. I'm going to become a Christian then. You know, I always tell people like that, what makes you think if you can't live for Jesus now in the age of grace, you're going to be able to die for him then in the age of tribulation? But you know what? That might not be possible. It may not be possible that people who have heard the gospel now and have been left behind at the, at the rapture, it may not be possible for them to receive Christ. There are many commentators that do not believe it's going to be possible. And I'll show you why they say that. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the coming of the Antichrist. So obviously he's talking about the time that we're studying. But in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul said, The coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders, he'll have the ability to do real miracles, but they will be lying signs and wonders. They will point people to a false Christ. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so a lot of people interpret that to mean this. Those people who have heard the gospel now and have rejected it, when the rapture happens and then the Antichrist shows up on the scene, God will send them strong delusion that they will not be able at that point, having rejected the gospel now, it will be too late. They will be deceived. God will allow it. They will not have a chance after the rapture to receive Christ. Now, I'm not convinced that's an accurate interpretation. And let me tell you why. Often in the Bible, God will give us a definitive statement that we think is ironclad, written in stone, and yet he allows exceptions. It is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes the judgment. That's a pretty... Okay, that's a pretty ironclad rule, right? Have there ever been anybody in the history of the world that have died more than once physically? Sure. We see people in the Old Testament and in the New that were raised from the dead. And we assume, of course, they died again physically. Lazarus was one. Uh, There were others in the Old Testament. There's at least three people that Jesus raised from the dead. There might have been more in his public ministry. So even in that some seemingly ironclad statement is appointed unto men to die once, and then comes the judgment. We see exceptions granted. Give me another one. 1 John 
John says, how do we know that we have passed from death to life? How do we know that we're saved and on our way to heaven? If we love the brethren, he said. Does that mean that all Christians love every other Christian in the body of Christ? Let's be honest. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, right now, some Christians would not at all be sad if they lived on the opposite end of heaven than someone else. It's a general rule, though, that once you become a Christian, the evidence is you love the body of Christ. Okay, doesn't doesn't mean we don't have conflicts. It doesn't mean at any given time there might not be some family fighting. You come from a big family, you know how that works. <laughs> Yet somebody start picking on you from outside the family, you see how quickly the family comes together. So I'm hoping that what Paul is saying is that those people that have defiantly rejected the gospel now, and many of them are the leaders, the movers and the shakers, the big shots, right? who want to do their own thing, when the rapture happens and the Antichrist comes, a man that is exactly who they want, somebody that will tell them that they are God. I believe that's what the Antichrist is going to tell people. He's going to come with a message of, you know what, you're divine, you just need to get enlightened. Like me, look, I've got all these powers, it's because I've tapped into the God flow, you know? You could, same God force fills you. You can tap into pantheism, New Age doctrine, so on. And I believe that's a message that the majority of the people of this world want to hear, especially those who are, you know, the so-called movers and shakers. I don't think it necessarily applies to people that we've witnessed to who love us, who do listen, but are not convinced or not ready to give up some sin in their life. They haven't hardened their hearts like some of these other folks. It's not a, ooh, a, just a real rebellious antagonism towards the things of God. You know, it's carnality. You know, keeping. I'm hoping that they're not the ones who are going to be, you know, that this passage is speaking to. That they'll be the exceptions. That their hearts will be soft enough to God when they see the rapture happen. They will get on their knees immediately and say, you know what? They were right. And I know what I need to do now. So... But I cannot tell you that my interpretation is the correct one either. So it really, really behooves us to pray for our unsaved loved ones now while we're still in the age of grace. Well, verse 11, John says, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Hey, we are all up in heaven, gathered around the throne, and we are all praising God. We're full, as Peter said, of joy inexpressible and full of glory. All of us, and in America, we haven't lived so hard, uh, I know, but there have been many around the world believers that have suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. They have suffered through this life, and now they're in glory, and they're getting their rewards. The people of this world who live for this life, now they are beginning to reap what they have sown. It's a reversal, isn't it? 
At one point, these folks, many of them were down on the earth. They were starving. They were persecuted. Uh, they were going through very difficult times. And the rich, the earth dwellers, you know, those people that made this world their home, uh, they were living it up. You know, the, psalm, the psalmist said that in Psalm 73. He said, you know, something has bothered me for a long time. In fact, it so bothers, it used to bother me, it almost caused me to slip and stumble in my, in my faith. You say, well, what was it? He says, why is it that the wicked, they seem to do pretty well in life. They live long lives. They have many children. They gather their families around the table and they're at peace. They have good health. They have plenty to eat. They have all kinds of material blessings. And here I am as a child of God. I'm suffering. You know, I'm being persecuted. I don't always have enough to eat. I'm going through one trial after another. Why is it, God? I mean, this doesn't seem fair. I love you. I'm your child. Why am I going through this? And the wicked seem to be having just a great old time, live long lives, etc. This almost made me stumble in my faith, he said, until I went into the house of God, and then I realized their end. Isn't it wonderful to come to church Open the Word of God and get your head back on straight. To get your perspective of things, you know? When you go out into the world, you begin to see things kind of from the eyes of the world. You begin to, you know, envy a little bit or maybe covet what some of the things the world has and wonder why, God, you're not blessing me like some of these unbelievers. And you come to church, you open the Word, and as we study Revelation, exactly what we're talking about, you begin to realize something the psalmist realized. That, you know what, they can live it up on this earth. But their time is short. I'm a child of God. I might suffer now, but I'm going to enter into glory someday, and that's going to be forever. So who really has a better deal? Didn't the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11, the great Hall of Faith chapters, he's talking about the different examples of faith throughout the Old Testament period, and he talks about Moses. And he says, you know, Moses was born, you know, a Jew, but raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter which meant he had lived in the palace, he had access to the finest foods and, and uh, comforts and education and so on that Egypt had to offer. In fact, he was in line for the very throne of Egypt, which was the world governing power at that time. But Moses realized he could enjoy Egypt only and all the pleasures of Egypt only for a short time. And his life was going to be over with. And he decided it was far better to leave Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world, right? So it was far better to give all of that up to serve the Lord because then someday he would enter into eternal rewards. And Moses was an example of somebody who did something very wise. As Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on the earth because they're only going to be short-lived, short-enjoyed, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven because those rewards will never perish. And John says, look, in his first epistle, chapter uh, 2, verses 15 to 17, he said, don't love the world, nor the things in the world, because all that is in the world, all of its lust, they're rapidly passing away. All the lust of the eyes and the flesh and the pride of life, all that stuff is of the earth, is of the world. And you know what? The world is passing away and all the lusts of it. But if you devote your life to God and you serve Him, You may not have the easiest life now. 
You may not have the most earthly comforts, but I guarantee you that when you die, you are going to receive a reward that will never fade away. And I just see in Revelation here, I just see this whole thing coming to pass. All the Christians, all the believers who have suffered through this life and now have entered into the rewards in heaven, and all the people that have made this world their home in the sense that this is everything, this is their kingdom, this is, it's all here right now. They're living for this life only. Man, we see it all coming down around them. Well, in verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders asked me, saying to me, or excuse me, one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And so he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14 says, These are those who come out of the great tribulation. The Greek literally is, Who come out of the tribulation, the great one. Signifying that this event now is happening in the second half of the the last seven years. In fact, turn to Matthew 24. I want to just show you this. I know we've looked at it before, but in Matthew 24, Jesus Christ is giving His disciples a look into the future at what is coming. Of course, this is not going to affect them directly, but it's something that is going to be affecting uh, the Jews, I think, shortly. But in verse 15, Jesus said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. And of course, we realize that what Jesus is talking about is at one point the Antichrist is going to to go into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Uh, The covenant that he makes with Israel that starts off the seven-year tribulation period. Remember, Daniel tells us that he signs a covenant with Israel for one week or a seven-year period. That covenant will probably allow them to rebuild their temple. And we're going to see that in Revelation 11 a little more clearly. But at the midpoint of the seven years, after the temple has been completed and now the offerings are taking place every day, the sacrifices, the daily sacrifices and oblations, at one point he's going to go into the rebuilt temple He's going to cause the sacrifices to the true and living God to stop. He's going to take an image of himself and erect it in the Holy of Holies and demand to be worshipped as God. Jesus said, when you see that abomination take place, then, verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. The housetops in Israel are patios. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Jump down to verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And so we know that the great tribulation starts somewhere in the midpoint of the last seven years. And since these have come out of the Great Tribulation, we realize that these people have been slaughtered, have been martyred, sometime after the midpoint of the Tribulation period. John says, These are the ones who come out of the Great Tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're martyrs. 
I like what John Wolverd said. John Wolverd wrote a classic commentary on Revelation, and he said, and I quote, Some believe that the majority of saints in the tribulation will die as martyrs. Many will be killed by earthquakes, war, and pestilence. Others will be the object of, object of special persecution by the world, lead, uh, world ruler, the Antichrist. They will be hounded to death, much as the Jews were in World War II. Because they will not worship the beast, they will be under a death sentence, which we will read about in Revelation 13, verse 15. Those who accept Christ in that time may be faced with the solemn alternative of either renouncing their faith in Christ and worshiping the beast or being slain. The result will be multiplied thousands of martyrs. Now, here's what I believe is going to happen. During the first three and a half years, the Antichrist, of course, is going to be thrust into power at the beginning of that time. He's going to be given his authority. He's not going to be a military dictator at that point. He's going to come as a man of peace. He will have the answers to the world's dilemmas. The, the people of this world are going to want him to take control. And he will initiate the mark of the beast, which we're going to read about more in chapter 13, but it will be voluntary. There will be believers during this time and some of them will be killed. When the midpoint happens, and the Antichrist, he goes into the rebuilt temple, sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, and demands to be worshipped as God, at that point the mark becomes mandatory, and now the people on the earth who are believers are faced with a real dilemma. If they take the mark, well, they, they cannot be saved. But if they don't, they're going to be massacred. And I believe that's what we're seeing here. I believe that this happens. All these people are martyred because it's, John sees an innumerable multitude, right? So what is going on that these people are all dying in this, these great numbers? Because they will not receive the mark of the beast. And now this guy is no longer a man of peace. He's a military dictator, and he's taken off heads all over the place if people refuse to take his mark. Because that mark is a sign of allegiance, and if you don't align yourself with the Antichrist, you must be some kind of a devil worshiper. And in fact, it's going to be an inversion at this period because those pe- people are going to worship the devil thinking he's God. And those people that worship the true and living God are going to be looked upon as the devil worshipers. So it's going to be a, a strange inversion of, of morality and thinking and, and so on. And it's going to be a horrible period. Now, let me just say this. Some people believe that this great innumerable multitude that we are introduced to in chapter 7 is the church being raptured out of the world. Those folks in the pre-wrath camp believe that what you have here in chapter 7, when John sees this great multitude of every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, this is the rapture right here. These are the church. This is the church saints being raptured into heaven. Well, If that's true, and if these are Christians being raptured into heaven who are the church, it's odd that John, who was an elder in the church, doesn't recognize any of them. He doesn't recognize these folks. One of the elders says to him, John, who are these people? John says, well, you know, sir. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm all ears. Who are they? These are tribulation saints. They're not the church saints. We've dealt with this, I think, in detail Already, But there are those who claim these, this is the church. If it's the church, why doesn't John recognize any of them? He was an elder, an apostle in the church. Certainly he would have recognized some of them. He didn't. 
because they are not the church. They are tribulation saints. Verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Um, Again, we make a distinction between these folks and the church because these folks uh, are before the throne, serve God day and night. We as the bride of Christ or the church, we are going to be sitting on thrones and reigning with Christ. So that's the difference. The Bible talks about Jesus promised his church that we would sit with him on thrones and judge the world and reign with him. And, and, here, and here these folks are, uh, are before the throne, and they are serving God day and night in his temple. Now, there are two temples. There's one in heaven, one on the earth. When we come to the millennial kingdom, of course, you have uh, a millennial temple that's going to be built, but, but you also have a temple in heaven. The temple in heaven is what the earthly tabernacle and temple were patterned after. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him, day by day. day, by day.